Well, hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, July the 8th, 2022, and it is a short week, and it has my uh, my whole week thrown off, but I'm ready for it to be a Friday, guys. I really am. Uh, three interviews this week. I really like doing some standalone shows, and then you compress three interviews into four days, and then two of them that were Bitcoin breakout, and that's double the work to get them out onto the breakout side as well. Uh, It wore me out this week, but I still have a great expert counsel show for you. That's right, expert counsel on Friday, 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 not Thursday, 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 uh, as has been the way of things because we had to do some schedule adjusting, which is why there were two Bitcoin breakouts this week. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit uh, before I introduce our first expert counsel segment from Ron Paul. Not so much the breakout, but like some complaints I've been getting that. Man, I try. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, and some claims that I censor people, which are just preposterous. And I'll talk a little bit about how you might make a comment somewhere, and it might not show up right away, and it might not be because I removed it. It might be because I don't want people putting lots of porn and things like that. So there's content filtering in every place that people can comment, uh, and most of it's controlled by the platforms such as YouTube, not Jack Spierko, me, myself, and I, though I do run it on the blog, too. And I'll talk about that a little bit today. What else are we going to talk about today? Well, I got the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for you. Dr. Paul himself will talk about how stubbornly clinging to economic po to bad economic policy is, well, stupid. He uses a nicer word, but I'm going to call it stupid. Dan McAdams talks about how Zelensky is now basically doing a quarter trillion dollar margin call with the West and specifically the United States. He's like, I need, like I said, another $750 billion, please. Well, our, our, our POTUS did tell him we had an open checkbook. So if you tell somebody, like, you know, do you have an open checkbook in the United States, they might have $750 billion. $750 billion. And I, I like to put it, because people lose track of reality here, that's three quarters of a trillion dollars. Man, i got to find a video for you guys someday. Um, this is from long, long ago. And it was it was the like the, the, the $100 million penny or the $10 million penny or something like that. I'll find that one day, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about it next week, because it, it starts to show you really how much money that these idiots have printed. Chris Rossini will talk about how the, play, the, federal, uh, the Federal Reserve is now playing stupid. Like, it, this is something that bugs me. When people play stupid, it, 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 I, I lose all respect. It, not that I have a lot of respect for the Federal Reserve as it, as it begins, but as I was discussing with, uh, with one of our guests this week, uh, with Nassim Taleb, about like when you pretend that you don't know a thing so that you can make your case, that's when I lose respect for you. And basically the Fed's doing that now with, we don't really understand why all this inflation happened. Yeah, you do. You did it, and you know you did it. Uh, Jeff Lawton will talk about gardening with tractor tires. And if you're like, I feel like I heard about that before from Jack, and then it didn't happen. Yeah, that's what happened last week. Somehow that segment got left out of last week's expert counsel show. I've made sure it won't happen this week. Ken Berry will talk about how you sometimes get a rash when you switch to a keto diet. I'm going to talk about a comment that I recently responded to uh, from, my, uh, from my keto journey playlist. Patrick Rohrman will talk about knives with specifically an S-grind to them. Nick Ferguson will talk about limited space fruit tree placement. 
old Doc Bones will talk to you about the herb chamomile. And I have a segment for you as my anchor segment today called Were Conspiracy Theorists Really Right About Literally Everything? And I think there's a big ass, it depends in there. That one will be done by a live stream uh, out on all the video platforms as well. With that, um, I do want to lead off with reminding you guys about our sponsor. Sponsor of the day is, well, it's two, but it's really the same person. It's Paul Wheaton and permies.com and richsoil.com. I, I know that most of you have heard of Paul because he's part of the expert council, sort of informally. I've had him on the show a buttload of times. Uh, he's a sponsor, and many of you have probably been to Permies and Rich Soil, but have you ever really dug in to richsoil.com? Pun intended. If you dig in, you'll find so much information, so much incredibly valuable information. And if you go to permies.com, you'll find literally the only old-school-style forum that's growing in the age of social media, where, where things have all moved to... Twitter and Facebook and Float and MeWe and, and, and you know, TikTok and sites like that. Like his forum still is growing every day, and there's a reason. There's an incredible community there. So check out both of those websites, permies.com and richsoil.com, and check out the cool-ass events and different ways you can go up and visit Paul Wheaton, the Duke of Permaculture in the wilds of Montana. Now, before I bring Dr. Paul and his crew on, let me just say something, and this is not really about this one person. Right. This is not really about this one person. It's just the most recent example today. There's like 10 of them yesterday. People will go to the, the survivalpodcast.com and comment on an episode, which is basically it's a blog. That we, that's how you run a podcast in this day and age. If you do it right, you run like a WordPress blog, you embed your audio files, and they go out to all the platforms, the value for value stuff. They go. That's how you do it. Um. Or they go to YouTube, or they go to some other place where my content is, and they make a comment. And sometimes it's a bitchy, whiny-ass, adult-adolescent comment. I tend not to remove those. In fact, when it's really over the top on YouTube, once I see it, I will generally respond to it with some sort of Godsmackism to it, and then I will pin it to the top since it's attention-seeking behavior. I figure the person wants attention. So the last thing I'm going to do is take it down, let the person have all the attention they want. If they don't like the attention that they get from it, they can take it down. I don't censor comments. If you're linking to porn sites, if you're like a neo-Nazi skinhead, if it's something like that, Yes, then I take your con comment down. If you are a professional troll, in other words, you show up with the same shit over and over again four or five days in a row, or you're in my live stream chat and you're on and on and on about your thing, especially when it's not related to the thing that we're actually talking about, then yes, I remove you from that. But that that's it. So this gentleman commented today, and he was bitching about Bitcoin content showing up in his YouTube news feed, and he doesn't want my Bitcoin bullshit. Right? This guy turns out he is a long-term follower. Well, the whole reason I did Bitcoin Breakout is so that we can have a Bitcoin Breakout. So he's pissed at me over YouTube's freaking algorithm, which I have no control over. So I basically told him kindly to, to sod off elsewhere. I didn't pin his comment. He wasn't that bad. And uh, he made some sort of comment, and then it's like, He made a comment like, look at little Jackie getting triggered and deleting my comments or something like that. And all that had happened is he had been thrown into to YouTube uh, purgatory. Because I run strong filtering on YouTube because 
Every third comment is a porn site or some scammer trying to get you to think it's me and contact me on WhatsApp. You guys hear my disclaimer on all the live streams. That's why I put that disclaimer out. So I'm trying to protect my audience and protect my image by not linking to freaking, you know, some sort of uh, disgusting porn thing that some guy posts all the time with Spanish language, right, to try to get around filtering. So that's why that happens. So I approved them. And, and all I could say is if, if you ever post anything and you don't see it, Don't assume that I censored you. And by the way, I'm not censoring you anyway. That's not how censorship works. YouTube censors. Right? YouTube censors. YouTube is supposed to be a platform. They put out a, 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 a set of guidelines as to what's okay and what's not okay. And people put content there and build a business there. And then they take shit down. Right? That's censorship. Because they're not following their own rules, and they just change them at whim, and they, they harm people in that. The SurvivalPodcast.com is my freaking website that I freaking pay for. It's like my house. You have no more right to put content on my site that I find objectionable. Then you have to write what you want to write on my front door of my house. It's my property. So I don't apologize for it. And if you go to the SurvivalPodcast.com, I'm very clear about what is and what is not acceptable. If you go to the About tab, and then you will find disclaimers and policies, and you can read it. And I wrote it 11, no, 12 years ago, and it's never been altered for 12 years. So that's the rules. Anyway, let's dig on into it. If you listen to all that preamble, thank you for it. I just needed to get it out of my system. You guys are my friends, and sometimes we vent to friends, and we also want things to be clear. So... Ron Paul in the Liberty Highlights of the Week, stubbornly clinging to bad economic policy is stupid. Zelensky's quarter trillion dollar margin call and the Fed playing stupid on how they themselves caused inflation. But they still don't ever even consider, you know, a couple things. The morality of money. Inflationism and central banking is corrupt and it's equivalent to fraud. And it's, it's, it's compatible with counterfeiting. It's an economic system that doesn't work, which we talk about all the time, and they know it doesn't work. And they don't have authority to do it because it's not in the Constitution. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's in the Constitution. They shouldn't be doing it. They should uh, only accept gold and silver as legal tender. So, uh, so you'd think they'd wake up, and maybe again, I'm looking for an opening. After 40 years and the failure that we're in the middle of and is going to get worse... If the people get the information, and I do believe that when they get the information, just like when they got more information about, you know, the lockdown over COVID, you know, they said no more. This is for nonsense. So I think that is going to be the case, and that's been that way in history. The people finally wake up, and the inflators, the individual who's the most responsible for the runaway inflation when everybody agrees, yeah, uh, you know, like in Zimbabwe or Venezuela, very often the individual who identifies with that can get into big trouble, and, and the people turn against them. So if you, if you get rid of that, that, that program and that ability to do that, how are they going to finance these wars? How are they going to finance this welfareism and wokeism and all the nonsense that go on? Because they'd have to earn the money, and if they wanted the program, they'd have to tax the people. Right now, the tax goes through printing money, and that becomes a tax. 
every time people spend money today, if prices are higher than they were last year, they should think in their mind, that's a tax, that's a tax, it's a tax on me, and why am I being taxed, and that's middle class. So, But that would have to be addressed if we would have enough people in this country to wake up and say we need to see a change. Ukraine lays out $750 billion recovery plan for post-war future. And here is Zelensky in his dramatic presence uh, in at the Swiss meeting of potential donors for his country. You know, Zelensky reminds me of a card shark, Dr. Paul. And everyone at the table are these dopey European and American leaders. And no matter what they do, he keeps taking their money and they keep putting it down on the table because they don't realize they're being had. They're a little bit slow. So in a way, I guess Zelensky gets a little bit of credit. He knows how to steal money. But it's just so bizarre, the chutzpah of this whole thing. They've just lost completely the Lugansk province. It's gone. It's in Russia's hands, and there's very little chance of them getting anything back. Uh, with the capture of Lushansk, which is a sister city of several Donetsk, that's gone. Uh, the Donetsk province is about to be gone. The troops, are in the Russian troops, whatever you think of, this is the reality on the ground, are about to take Slavyansk. That's coming next in Kramatorsk. So basically... You're in the middle of losing half of your country, and you're talking to, you're saying, I need almost a trillion dollars to reconstruct our country after the war. Well, you're losing the war. How, how is this possible? It's just, um, it's just amazing that they can do it. But Zelensky has a way with words, as all card sharps do. Let's put this next quote up, because this is what's, this is how, this is how <laughs> Zelensky knows how to talk the language of the dopey Western leaders. Here he is. Quote, the reconstruction of Ukraine is not a local project, is not a project of one nation, but a common task of the entire democratic world. All countries, all countries who can say they are civilized. Restoring Ukraine means restoring the principles of life, restoring the space of life, restoring everything that makes humans humans. And make that check out to Vladimir Zelensky, right? <laughs> Ron Paul has been for 40 years... Uh, saying that the Fed does not know what they are doing, and uh, he's been right. And it's not because if he was Fed chair, he would do things differently. It's because nobody can do what they try to do, which is centrally plan the economy. It's, uh, you know, if he was Fed chair, he's often said he would shut down the Fed. That would be job number one because uh, there is uh, no way to centrally plan the economy, and they only create booms and busts, and they are the source of inflation. Well, this week, Fed Chair uh, Powell was on a some kind of forum, and he, he said something that really caught our attention. He said, quote, I think we now understand better how little we understand about inflation. He said this was unpredicted. So he's basically saying that they don't know uh, what they're doing. However, I don't know if I believe that uh, completely. You know, they counterfeited trillions of dollars. They didn't know that that would drive up prices. I doubt it. But that's the usual pattern with people who have uh, power. They, uh, you know, they do the wrong thing and then claim that nobody knew. Uh, think back to the Iraq War. You know, did nobody know that going across the world to try to remake an entire society from the ground up wouldn't work? Ron Paul knew that it wouldn't work. In fact, all his speeches are available saying, don't do this. This is the wrong thing to do. Twenty years later and six trillion dollars later, you know, we had to come home. 
what about the lockdowns and the masks and the vaccines? Did nobody know that those wouldn't work? Well, those censored people, they knew that it wouldn't work. So it's the same thing with the Fed. The Fed knew what they were doing. They knew that creating trillions of dollars would cause prices to skyrocket. But, of course, they don't want the blame pinned on them. But this is the usual pattern, uh, you know, just do the wrong thing, censor the people who are saying to do the right thing, and then claim that nobody knew that this would happen. Good stuff from all three, as always. I, I did want to point something out. I, I, something stuck in my head when I heard Dr. Paul talking about how inflation is a tax. Now, Dr. Paul, serving as a congressman for over two decades, was one of the first people I've ever heard specifically state publicly, with any influence anyway, that inflation is a tax. Ron Paul literally got Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time this happened, to admit that inflation was indeed a hidden tax on the American people on the floor of Congress. But you know who else is using the term tax now? Our befuddled, bumbling, mid-stage dementia patient who is currently the most powerful dementia patient on planet Earth and most powerful man on planet Earth, Joseph Biden. Joseph Biden recently stated that all of this inflation was the... Remember the Putin price hike? He said, well, now I call it blah, 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 and a bunch of words, and a guy transcribing is like, I have no idea what the hell this guy's saying. Sign language ladies, like, what the hell? But basically, what he mumbled out of his mouth, it's the Putin price tax. Vladimir Putin is taxing you, not the Federal Reserve, not, not, not Biden's economic policy, not Biden's foreign policy, not the, there's an accumulation of policies here that are resulting in this inflation curve. It is not just the money printing. The money printing is the biggest reason for the problem. There's no doubt about that. You can't just inflate the M3 by trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and not have this happen. But the sanctions on Russia, the prolongation of the Ukraine war, which is going to end the way it's going to end no matter what we do, the pissing away of American treasure on Ukraine, all of it together... The overall policies that have been in place since Trump was president when COVID started that created massive supply chain disruptions that never had to happen. All of it has contributed. Biden gets a big piece of the blame for our inflation and his administration and what's being done on his watch. Don't let the orange man off the hook. Shutting down this country, hitting the stop button on production, sanctioning it, I know the state governors did it individually, but sanctioning it from the Washington, D.C. federal level, all of this has caused this shit. And everybody's playing grab ass with it, it's not my fault. Every single person that publicly tells you it's not my fault this happened probably had something to do with it. Moving on to something more productive. This segment I left out last week. Gardening with tractor tires from Jeff Lawton. I love this segment. After it's over, I'll come back and I'll tell you why. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Jordan. And I have a question here about uh, someone who has a couple of old tractor tires and they're wondering whether it's safe to garden in them. I know people who have been gardening in tractor tires for 50 years. And, and they're in their 70s, some are in their 80s, and they're absolutely fine. Of course tractor tire material it could be considered a bit toxic but lots of things are and a lot of the air we're breathing is too but the thing is that you've got organic material 
in in the soil and and so if you've got three percent organic matter plus you can get three percent organic matter and it's 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 stable and we can usually do that very easily in a garden and very very easy in a tractor tire add enough compost and worm castings and worm juice and mulch and all those sort of organic goodies we do so the soil is alive and that means that there's enough organic matter being added to the top and it's continuously in process and it's being consumed and there's a big carbon cycle going on in your soil that's how we grow organic veggies and and, and plants and trees generally so in, in that process, any minor toxins, and they would only be minor toxins coming off a tyre, are completely locked up in the carbon cycle. The carbon molecule becomes adhesive because it's a cube. It's a cuboid. If you remember chemistry lessons, carbon. Life is based in carbon. Diamonds are made out of carbon. They're the hardest substance in the known universe, just about. But you've got a carbon cycle where that carbon molecule becomes adhesive and becomes a long chain molecule attaching any minor toxins and in that case they become inert so i wouldn't worry in the slightest you'd be absolutely fine they make good raised bed gardens you've got to watch them in hot dry climates because they get really hot because they're black Um, but um, they make a nice convenient raised bed and you can reach right into the middle Um, i don't see anybody i can't think no anybody that's had any toxicity problems we go in organically anyway as we do in tires go for it i'd say so i want to be clear what jeff's talking about when he says tractor tires because i think you can use tires period to do this but when he says a tractor tire he's talking about a big ass tractor think you're your average, you know, kind of mid-sized farm tractor, not something that's out on, well, if you get them, that's fine, that's out, you know, doing 40,000 acres. But, yeah, your typical tractor that has kind of small tires in the back, big-ass tires in the rear, and you have to cl- you'd have to climb up that tire maybe to get in the tractor or to work on it or something, right? It'd be a tire that'd be kind of hard for you to handle alone without a little bit of help if you had to change a tire, that kind of tire. And so this is a fairly big, large-capacity And they are a valuable resource. And if we don't use them for something, they're really not very recyclable. There is some stuff being done with tires now. It's a little bit better. But in the end, we either do something with them or they end up in a landfill. And one of the problems with burying a tire, if you've ever tried to get water out of a tire, you know, like if you ever had a tire that's got water in it, like an unmounted tire, you kind of have to keep flipping it. And there's a skill set actually to getting water that's inside a tire out of a tire so the inside's dry. I only noticed because my dad ran a tire shop when I was a kid. And so the same thing happens if you bury tires, that you end up with air pockets in them, and eventually if they're not buried in the right kind of soil, they will literally float to the top. Like they tried landfills in Florida back when I was a kid. I, again, I know this from my dad being in the tire business, where these tires were working their way to the surface because they were in highly wet, sandy soil, and when you got enough of a rain event, they literally floated to the surface through the sand. So we need to do something with them. The next thing, though, is I love this idea, and I love the fact that Jeff is pointing out once again, you get organic matter and soil life high enough, these small amounts of pollutants that may exist end up getting into a a lockup. Jeff's the one that got me to stop being afraid to use uh, newspaper a long, long time ago. I said, well, there might be, you know, like cadmium in the newspaper print. And he's like, it might be a small amount, and it might end up in your soil, but your plant doesn't want it, so it's not going to take it up. 
And if it's bound up, like he said, with, with organic matter, it won't. But he also told me to get that plant to even take up that cadmium, your pH needs to be low enough that it's dissolved by acid into the soil, into the water, and then the plant is forced to drink it because it's in its water. And by the way, if your soil acidity is that high, you have other problems growing anything productive. And sitting here where all my soil is freaking alkaline, I'm not real worried about it. So I love the fact that nature heals all. And the last thing I want to tell you about these big tires, and this will be in my upcoming aquatics course, they're great for making garden ponds. And the basics of that is you take something like a sawzall and you cut one sidewall out of the tire, the top, which is going to be the top. You dig a hole and you sink the tire's top <clears throat> to at grade or just above grade and you put it down in a hole. And then you dig the diameter of the other side of the tire, the bottom side's wall. So you've got now you've got the sidewall still on the bottom and you dig down a foot or two. And you line that, and the tire forms a really good uh, sidewall protector, but you end up with a perfect step down. And my thought is, you take that sidewall out. Well, if you go and you take out, let's say, 10 inches of, of the, the actual tread side of the tire, down just maybe an inch lower, you have a, you have a perfect uh, overflow sill, couple of these guys set up. Maybe some of them have one on each side. Maybe there's a three pat, you know, three tires in a pattern. Micro swales, and they would make. And, and if you think they'll look ugly because they're tires, I want you to go Google tire pond. They've been making these in Australia, in the UK, forever as part of their urban permaculture movement. And they're both of those nations are so ahead of us on urban permaculture. It's unbelievable. Of course, it did kind of start there, right? But you will see that you can make these things absolutely beautiful. And because they have so much structural support, and because they're not that big, and if it ever does need to be replaced, you just pump it out and reline it, most of them are lined with inexpensive plastic, like vapor barrier plastic, one or two or three layers. Who cares? It's cheap, instead of expensive pond liners. And you can learn more about them that way. And again, this will be in my aquatics course. Next up, let's talk about getting a rash. When you get into the keto way of living, the proper human diet, as Ken Berry calls it. Hello, TSP crew. Dr. Ken Berry here answering a question today from Alan. Alan says, I have been on keto around 18 months. I'm currently struggling with keto rash and wondered if you or Dr. Berry had any thoughts, inputs, or suggestions on how to deal with this. I have the rash on my back and neck. Uh, but as with so much on the Internet, there's a wide variety of information and misinformation out there. Ain't that the truth? Trying to sort through the information and appreciate your help. Thanks for all you do, Alan. So, Alan, keto rash is a very transient thing that happens when you first started eating a keto diet. It actually is very, very rare. I've only seen one or two cases ever in my 20-year career. Uh, what you're describing is 100% not a keto rash. Just because something happens while you're eating a proper human diet, and keto would be on the spectrum of a proper human diet, doesn't mean that you just need to put the word keto in front of it and call it that. So if you are have been eating keto for 18 months and then you were in a car wreck, you wouldn't go to the ER and say, oh my God, I've had a keto car crash. That would be silly, right? And so I know you're not a medical expert, Alan, and, and that's fine. Uh, this is definitely not a keto rash. You need to go see your primary care doctor, and if they can figure out what's causing this and fix it, great. If not, go see a dermatologist 
because this is 100% not a keto rash. Good question, Alan. Thanks for submitting it. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next time. So I think Ken maybe misspoke uh, a little bit there. And if I'm wrong, Ken, you can let me know. But when he said he's only seen one or two cases, I, I think what he probably meant is one or two cases of keto rashes that went longer than like a few days or a few weeks. Because rash, when you go on keto, is common. I know I had significant rash flare-up, itchy spots on my chest and stuff, and it was immediate upon making the switch. And I don't actually think keto causes it. It's not the fat that you're eating. It's not the protein that you're eating. It's not the reduction in carbohydrate. It's your own fat being burnt at a rapid rate, releasing toxins in your body, and that can manifest a lot of ways. Uh, so about, I, I don't, I, I do agree with Ken on this though. Like 18 months, this is not a keto rash. Keto rashes don't last 18 months. Now, again, I agree with go talk to your primary care or a dermatologist. It is possible because you didn't say carnivore, you said keto, and when people say keto, they often are using all kinds of things. There could be a dietary trigger here. You know, you could be using a lot of, let's say, psyllium husk, which is often used in keto bread, tortilla-type substitutes that are homemade, and it works really good for that. You could have a sensitivity to some food that you're eating regularly. So one thing you might try, go pure, let's say, beef carnivore for a week and see if the rash improves, or go pure pork carnivore for a week. Just a week, see if the rash improves. Then begin to take the other foods that you eat. This is very much like a Whole30 analysis or a paleo analysis. You reduce down to the most bare level. You see if there's a correction. Now begin to add the other foods you regularly eat back, one or two at a time. If you then begin to go the other direction, you can identify that sensitivity. You can also go to a dermatologist, and this is something they would probably do without me advising you this, but sometimes doctors need a little push in the right direction so that you get the thing you need on the first visit, not the third when they're going to bill you four times before they you know, take the drastic step of actually doing this. You can actually have skin allergy sensitivity testing done. And they'll give you a list of things. And I have found some very close friends to me have sensitivities to certain things that are absolutely okay keto carnivore, but they are, but maybe they are not okay for you. So it's not the keto carnivore thing. It's the one or two things. For instance, one of my very good friends has a sensitivity to carrageen. Now, if you were getting your own cream or half and half for your coffee, From your own cow, this would not be an issue. Carrageen is actually a seaweed thing, but most creamer of any sort has carrageen in it. So that would be an example of I'm being a purist. I'm, you know, beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. And Ken said cream is how you get, you know, so it's okay. I'll, cream makes butter. Yeah, but it's not cream. It's cream and carrageen, and the individual has a sensitivity. So that would be a, a path you might take as well. Next up. The S-Grind. What is that on a knife, the S-Grind? Hey guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives coming to, to you today with today's Expert Counsel segment. Today we're going to talk about blade grinds, blade geometries, and more particular, the S-Grind. What's an S-Grind? Well, an S-Grind is just what it sounds like. It's a grind that... If you were to cut the knife in half or look at a cross-section of the knife, it would look similar to an S. 
It's a combination of a hollow grind and a convex grind, or it could be a hollow grind and a flat grind, depending on, you know, the knife and the application. So with choosing different types of grinds, there's different advantages and disadvantages to each design. But in a recent batch of kitchen knives that I've uh, did, I played around with the S-Grind, and it does a couple things. One, it lightens the knife, which a couple ounces doesn't seem like a whole lot, but when you're talking about handling a knife, it really makes a difference. Some knives you pick up and they just feel like a boat anchor, and other ones you pick up and they're just light as a feather. I believe that a well-designed knife is going to be the proper weight for the task that's needed. So obviously if you were trying to, if you wanted to build a meat cleaver, you want that knife to have some weight behind it because you want it to cleave things in, in two. And with added weight, that that's just easier to accomplish. But if you're looking for a knife for slicing or food prep, you want that knife to be light and uh, just... It's less fatiguing on the hand, and it's going to glide through things uh, so much nicer. So with our chef's knife, that is a, a great place for something like an S-grind. It's going to take weight away from the blade. It's also going to help food to release um, somewhat, and it just cuts so much better. It's not going to bind. You get a binding action when you're trying to cut through something like a cantaloupe or some squash, something that's a little more dense. You'll notice that when you start the cut, it cuts rather easily. But as you get that blade into the cut, it starts to bind up. With an S-grind, you're going to find that you don't have that um, wedging action happen. It's going to cut through, you know, your more denser stuff just better. So all in all, I'm super happy with it. I have a, um, I think it's a, I think it's a five foot diameter radius platen. And what that means is it's a platen that's got a radius on it with a five foot, um, five foot radius. So a 10 foot circle. And it's a very subtle hollow grind. And then, so I'm, I'm grinding down the blade three quarters of the way with that hollow grind and then the last quarter of the blade or so is going to be flat or convex grind and it kind of acts like a an arrowhead the front of the blade is going to do the slicing and the penetrating um, and then the convex is not dragging and pinching on whatever you're cutting so all in all I've been super pleased with the performance of these knives with the S-Grind. It is a lot of added work, um, but I feel like it's worth worth the, the work to have uh, the, the added cutting performance, and it just makes the knife feel so much better. So, that's your little knife lesson for today. Hope you guys enjoyed, and if you have a question, feel free to send it to me, patrick at mtknives.net. Have a great day.
Good stuff from Patrick Rorman of MT Knives. You guys should really check out his stuff. I carry uh, several different MT Knives, but I'll, I'll tell you what my favorites are. Uh, one is called the Talon, and it is a very compact neck knife. Um, I believe he originally actually made it for some guys who wanted something more like it for diving. And uh, I, I just love it. I also have the Genesis, which is kind of his, his, his like flagship product for kind of the, the general available all the time knife. It's also a neck knife. Uh, then the other knife that I carry literally all the time, I mean, I almost never don't carry it, is a belt knife uh, that is a bird and trout pattern. They're not available on the site. You can contact them, see if he'll make you one. I had it custom made. If you want to ever have a knife custom made, you should really talk to Patrick about it. Something that you not only will have your whole life, but you will leave it behind to an heir who will treasure it. You're talking works of art when it comes to Patrick Rorman's customs. All right, next up, you have some trees, or you're going to buy some trees, and you're going to plant them, but you only have like a backyard about the same square footage as a lot of people's inside of their house. How do you make a decision where you plant your fruit trees? Do you interplant it in your garden, or do you use a different technique and use the margins or maybe a little bit of both. What say you, Nick Ferguson? Hey, guys, Nick Ferguson here with another expert counsel answer, and I have a question here on fruit trees. Nick Ferguson, with limited space, I am weighing whether to espalier fruit trees along a fence line or intersperse them in my garden and prune them to keep them small. I could do a little bit of both, but do you have a preference? I have a newly fenced backyard with roughly 1,700 square feet of usable space. I have a garden shed and chicken coop with six chickens that roam free in the fenced-in area most of the time. I live in zone 6A. I'm thinking three fruit varieties early, mid, late season to either espalier along the fence and or plant in my garden and manage size. Fence line has spots that get a good six to seven hours of sun. Um, gets anywhere from five to eight hours of sun. Also, I'd like your opinion on dwarf trees versus regular trees, buying an espalier tree versus training your own, and any recommendations on ideal fruit trees for zone six. Thanks. All right, uh, and that's from John. All right, with only 1,700 square feet of space, garden, chickens, and fruit trees, I mean, my garden is over 2,000 square feet, and it's not nearly big enough. Um, add chickens and fruit trees, man, I'd be really, really crunched for space. I definitely 100% go with espalier and dwarf rootstock. If you have no experience, which I don't know if you do or not, but seeing as how you're asking me, most likely not, then buying a professionally and properly trained espalier can save you years of trouble. And honestly, you'd likely not do it right the first time, because who does anything right the first time? So, I say if the price is bearable, take the hit, buy yourself some time, because that's literally what you're doing, by buying the pre-trained trees. As for recommendations, you're... I mean, you're in the sweet spot for just about all the fruits, excluding tropicals, of course. So... I have no idea. What do you like? Grow that. Most online re retailers will let you put in your zip code, and it'll automatically show you what cultivars are appropriate for your zone. 
on, I just go online and do some hunting for things you like to eat, take notes on what looks good, what's self-fertile. If it needs a pollinator, you must have that on hand or no fruit. Uh, spur-bearing apples are great for smaller spaces. Uh, there's lots of different spur-bearing bearing fruit trees. Um, but they're great for smaller spaces because they produce more on less branch. Um, and you do well to get self-fertile cultivars or multi-graft trees. Uh, just because you're not going to have room for very many trees. You're going to have, like, at the most half a dozen, and that's really pushing it. Uh, if you're going pre-made espalier, your selection options are going to be severely limited, so you'll likely be growing whatever you can get. Now, if that happens and you need a pollinator, you can always take a little bit of scion from a an appropriate cultivar to pollinate the thing that you have in the ground and you can graft it onto one of the branches and you can make your own multi-graft tree if that cultivar that you have in the ground needs a pollinator. So, I hope that helps. Uh, Thank you for all the responses on the land in Tennessee. It's really beautiful. I can't wait to show y'all pictures. I just got home from a consulting tour. I'm still going through all the emails. Y'all blew up my, my inbox. And I'm still putting fires out on the homestead here, and my sawmill is getting delivered Tuesday, so I have a lot of irons in the fire. I don't have numbers on the property yet. We are still in the earliest stages of seeing if this project can move forward. I have not purchased it. I don't have any contracts. I don't have anything concrete yet. We're in the earliest stages. I'm really hopeful that we can make this happen There's a lot of good forward movement and momentum, and it looks very doable. So I'll be working on compiling everyone's name and email to send out one mass email soon as I get some details for you guys. All right, that just about does it for me. Thank you all for the question. And uh, again, I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty and Rare Plant Store. Do good things. So sometimes I like pre-listen to these segments so I can whip the show together. Sometimes as I'm producing the show, I listen on the fly. That's what I'm doing today. As I do my segments, I'm going ahead and listening to the expert segments and then responding to them rather than having pre-listened to them as they came in through the week. I'm so glad I did that today, and this is why. I had meant to tell you about a Jeff Lawton video today during Jeff's segment on using tractor tires. Because it might be one of the best videos that Jeff has ever done. It really is a drylands desert strategy video. But the strategy and the techniques will work anywhere except where maybe shade would not be beneficial. Where you don't need any shade at all. You don't want shade at all on the plants that you're growing for productive means. But even then, the biomass accumulation, the composting, etc., everything else in this is fan-freaking-tastic. And what made me think of it is this question was either planting the trees against the margins or planting the trees within the garden itself, which is what this Jeff Lawton video is. It is titled, and it is a very new video, I think it came out a few days ago, Shade as dry as a Drylands Strategy. And it's a little over an hour long. It is not like super high production value music and moving images and inspirational song tracks and stuff like that. Other than that, right, if you just judge it for the content, this is something that if 
if it was available, let's say, on a streaming service or like on Apple TV or something, and I was like, oh, I'll watch that, and it was like eight bucks, nine bucks to buy it, I wouldn't even blink after watching it over paying the money. It's free. It's on YouTube. There's a link in today's show notes. And I think I'm starting to see a tremendous amount of overlap between Nick Ferguson's Fodder Tree Systems and Jeff's Desert Systems and combining and taking from both of those in your palette as a designer. And I really, I mean really encourage you maybe this weekend to check this video out again. It's in the show notes for today, which is, if you're listening sometime out in the future and you found it in the archives, episode 3121. And if you're always looking for an episode and you know the episode number on the site, just drop the number into the search bar on the site and it might pull a few other things up, but you'll be able to find it. Next up, Doc Bones on chamomile. Like this is a, a licensed physician and surgeon talking about an herb yeah you bet here we go doc bones on chamomile hi joe alton md here also known as dr bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net co-author of the 2022 book excellence award winner in medicine the fourth edition of the survival medicine handbook plus designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net today i want to talk about the health benefits of chamomile yeah, a regular MD talking about herbal tea. How about that? Hey, in times of trouble, you got to use all the tools in the woodshed. Chamomile tea will not only improve your overall sense of well-being as you drink it, but it also provides a wide array of health benefits as well. I bet you didn't know that. It's well known for treating stomach upset and sleeping disorders, but chamomile tea can do a lot more than that. Chamomile is an herb that belongs to the daisy family, and the tea itself is made from dried flower buds. Chamomile contains active ingredients that contain antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory, and anti-irritant properties. Pretty impressive. This popular tea contains the amino acid tryptophan, which has a sedative and relaxing effect. We use two to three teaspoons of dried flowers per cup to make an infusion at my house. Now let's talk a little bit about the benefits of chamomile tea. Here are a dozen different ways that you can improve your health with chamomile. Insomnia. Chamomile tea is great for soothing nervousness that can disrupt sleep and lead to insomnia. A natural sedative, chamomile tea is a great sleep aid. To improve your quality of sleep or ability to even fall asleep, drink three or four cups of chamomile tea a day. That'll mellow you out pretty well. It also can boost your immune system. Chamomile tea has a capability to help heal and soothe. Consistently drinking chamomile tea increases your level of something called hipparate. Hipparate helps stimulate your immune system by fighting harmful bacteria. So if you have a sinusitis, a cold, a flu, or other respiratory infection, consider drinking some chamomile tea. It'll not only help you recover, but it works as a great preventative measure as well. It also can help alleviate muscle cramps. People who regularly drink chamomile tea increase their levels of an amino acid known as glycine. Glycine helps soothe your nerves and reduce muscle contractions. It helps with spasm, but also eases menstrual cramps, as well as the irritation and tension that is associated with many people's monthly periods. Women should first speak with their physician, however, before drinking a lot of chamomile tea, because it can have an estrogenic effect, which some claiming an increase in the risk for breast and uterine cancer. How about depression? Well, drinking two or three cups of chamomile tea daily can help possibly treat symptoms of anxiety and depression. How about digestive issues? Chamomile tea has been long been known for its ability to help treat stomach upset. People that suffer from things like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, and diarrhea may find relief with this remedy. Plus, 
The antispasmodic and anti-inflammatory effects of the tea help soothe the smooth muscle lining of the GI tract. By relaxing these smooth muscles, you actually can get some relief from things like nausea or gas or heartburn. Chamomile tea is also thought to be helpful in treating colicky children. How about that? Chamomile tea may also regulate blood sugar. Those looking for natural help in controlling diabetes may get some help from chamomile tea. Drinking chamomile tea can level out your blood sugars, preventing high spikes and low drops. Be sure to speak with your physician, by the way, before incorporating chamomile tea into a diabetes maintenance plan. There's a lot more to diabetes than just chamomile tea. Also, by the way, if you have wounds, it might possibly reduce the healing times of cuts scrapes and burns. The antibacterial, antioxidant, and antimicrobial properties may help prevent infection in injuries. People that suffer from canker and other mouth sores actually find the chamomile tea makes a decent mouth rinse. It's also a good way to help manage gum disease. And also, if you're going from one end to the other, it works to soothe hemorrhoids due to its anti-inflammatory properties. Some believe it not only helps reduce them, but eliminates them altogether. Now, of course, you're not drinking chamomile tea for this. You, what you want to do is use it as a rinse after completing a bowel movement. You can also press a moist chamomile tea bag directly onto the hemorrhoid to encourage shrinkage and soothe inflamed nerves. Speaking of other inflamed nerves, chamomile tea can help alleviate headaches, especially tension headaches. Chamomile tea can even help your skin especially if you have eczema. Eczema is an inflammatory skin condition that produces irritated, flaky, itchy, swollen skin. If you use chamomile regularly, it can help get these symptoms under control. What you do is use it topically by allowing the tea to steep in hot water for about 15 minutes, then dip a piece of gauze into the tea and apply directly to the affected area for about 20 minutes. Then remove the gauze and gently wash and dry it can help with another skin issue as well. If you got a sunburn, it can help speed up the healing process while providing cooling relief. You'd use the chamomile tea as a healing poultice in this case, brewing the tea and then letting it chill. A healing compress helps skin heal faster. And a third skin issue it can help is rosacea. Rosacea is an inflammatory condition that causes redness, swelling, and visible blood vessels on the face. Because of its anti-inflammatory properties, chamomile compress can really help control the symptoms of rosacea. Steep five chamomile tea bags in about three cups of boiling water for about 10 minutes. After 10 minutes, remove the tea bags from the tea, place the tea in the refrigerator until the liquid's cold. Once it's cold, dip a cotton cloth into the tea, wring out the excess moisture, place a compress onto the affected area on your face, and let sit for 15 minutes. Try to not get it in your eyes. Repeat this treatment about four times a day until you notice an improvement. There are always some possible ill effects to any herb, so before drinking chamomile tea, please consider the following. Chamomile tea can trigger an allergic reaction. If you're allergic to ragweed, celery, daisies, chrysanthemums, marigold, or calendula, you may want to avoid drinking this tea. If you're suffering from any health ailments, of course, you want to check with your physician before using chamomile tea or pretty much anything else as a treatment. Chamomile tea can interact with the following drugs, blood thinners, NSAID pain relievers like ibuprofen, aspirin, sedatives, naproxen, and antiplatelet medications. It's not recommended to drink chamomile tea two weeks before surgery as it may actually have some interaction even with the anesthesia during surgery. Chamomile tea can interact with the following supplements as well. St. John's wort, valerian, saw palmetto, garlic, and ginkgo biloba. When using chamomile tea, topically make sure to do an allergy patch test on your skin. In other words, apply a little of the chamomile poultice onto your skin and see what happens over the course of the next few hours. Does it get red and swollen? 
That's something that's important to know. There is currently not enough data to determine the safety of using chamomile while pregnant and nursing. If you are pregnant and nursing, it's probably best to avoid chamomile tea at this time. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about herbal remedies and all sorts of stuff in the Amazon Top 20 4th edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I'll just throw my little thing. I have found chamomile to be exceptional for relaxation in the evenings for irritated stomach. Like if you just feel like I need to settle my stomach... And there's some other herb that just happens to go perfectly with chamomile for those purposes and for flavor, and I believe makes tea more interesting, and it is peppermint or other any other variety of mint. And I just would say that like it seems to be seems to me to be one of those things that when you combine the two, both are more than the sum of their parts. So you, you drink mint tea and all that's nice, and you drink chamomile tea and all that's nice. It's got that kind of buttery thing going on. And you put the two together, and it is, you know, as simple as it is, salt and pepper. Pepper is a thing. You put on food, it tastes a certain way. You put salt on a food, it tastes a certain way. You put the two together, it's, it, it seems to be more than one and one equaling two. It's like one and one equaling three or four. So my little ad there. With that, we're going to go into my segment today. Uh, were conspiracy, conspiracy theorists literally right about everything? This will be done as a live stream as well. So if you want to share the segment, you'll be able to pick that up in the show notes as well as video. So the question, of course, were the conspiracy theorists right about literally everything? And who knows, this video may get taken down or something by ScrewTube. You never know. Because uh, I am going to talk about, of course, the scamdemic and the jabs and stuff today. But I really want to talk more about this concept now. And I've said, so that nobody takes me wrong in the contrarian view that I'll take to some of these claims today, that you should probably go out, find the person in your life that you've referred to up till now, and I, I've been saying this for like a year into the COVIDs and all, that you've referred to as my brother, my friend, my uncle, my cousin, whatever, the conspiracy theorist, hug them for telling you the truth, and then ask them what happens next. But I'll always put with things like that, maybe. Because where they write about literally everything. No. No. And I, I put conspiracy theorists into two camps. Okay? Two camps. People that are open to the fact that maybe we're not being told the truth, that research and determine the truth for themselves, and when they fall into something that is outside of the approved narrative of the ministry of truth, get labeled a conspiracy theorist by everybody that doesn't want to accept the truth or even look at the truth or hear anything that's outside what MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News say. That it can't be true. The experts people right, will label you a conspiracy theorist. And... Within that group, there are people that will also talk about things that happened in the past. Like, I, I personally do not buy into 100% of the narrative of 
I also think that, and I'm not going to go into the individual things, but I think there's a lot of things that 9-11 truthers say that are freaking batshit crazy. I think that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think rather than a made it happen, it was an allowed it to happen, kind of like Pearl Harbor. That would be another one. I definitely don't think we ever got the freaking truth about the Kennedy assassination. I don't pretend to know exactly what happened, though, like some people in the conspiracy theory world do. I look at what's going on with the UFOs, and I see that as our government conducting a PSYOP on its people. If you ever really want to understand how preposterous it is that aliens from beyond the moon are traveling to Earth and anal probing your cows and you, you need to get an understanding of interstellar distances. There's a video somewhere in animation, maybe somebody could find it for me, and I'll add it to the show notes, of somebody did a theoretical mock-up of the starships from Star Trek and said, here, we're all going to start them here, and you know, this one is capable of Warp 2, and this is Warp 6, and this is Voyager, which is like 9.975 or something, like the fastest one in the Star Trek universe. And it's it's all pathetically slow. That's over 1,000. 9.975 is like 1,075 times the speed of light where a dust particle would cause you to explode without special shielding or whatever bullshit they make up to make the Star Trek universe work. So I don't think that aliens are flying. If I, if I traveled that far, I would either use my superior technology to not be seen at all, or I would communicate. It would be one or the other. I wouldn't be accidentally filmed by some guy with his iPhone. Like, this is nonsense. So I think that's, it's a combination of holographic uh, deception weaponry being tested on our own troops, and a PSYOP to get you to pay attention to something else and be scared, kind of like Project Blue Book. So I think that there's there's this kind of middle ground. So where the conspiracy theorists literally write about everything. I think if you confine it to the COVID's pandemic and you confine it to all the things that normal, rational people that did research said, yes. I think if you include in it people that said it was being caused by the, uh, the, the fifth generation of cellular towers, no. No, because it's light waves, and if you understood anything about how that technology works at all, anything at all about how, how that technology works, you probably wouldn't think that. right? So I, here's my question. When somebody say, says that they're a conspiracy theorist and that their, 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 their conspiracy beliefs have validity, right? Tell me one you don't believe. Tell me one you don't believe. Tell me a well-known conspiracy theory that you think is bunk. If that person can't come up with one, I don't listen to anything else they have to say, even though they might be right. I can get the same thing from a rational person. And there, the, that's what I usually find, that the majority of people that get labeled the conspiracy theorist, they either believe in everything and the extreme version thereof. And anything that you put in front of them that makes a plausible type case, like they'll literally go flat earth on you. right? Here's an example of a video that I saw that was very well angled to make you believe a thing. And it was all about how supposedly there was a massive depopulation in the mid-1800s around the world that's been hidden and covered up, like as though we didn't have document documentary uh, documentation being done in writers and stuff, like nobody would have recorded it. And what it used was early photography, some of the first photographs ever taken to make this case. And I watched people go 
all in on this. Like, oh my God, thank you for bringing this to my attention. I had no idea they did this to us. And it was about supposed giant mud events and all because people don't have know how sedimentation works or what have you. But what they did with the pictures is they showed these pictures and they'd show like St. Petersburg, Russia. And they'd tell you what the population was at the time and they'd say, look at the shadows. This picture was taken midday. Where are the people? London, England. Downtown London, population 1.1 million at the time, or whatever the hell it was, right? No people. Where are the people? And they'd show later and later and later, and they'd say, oh, here's a few people. 25 years later, they're beginning to repopulate it. And it, if you watched it without knowing anything about like how early photography works, you're like, holy shit! How could there be no people around noon in Paris in 1870 you know, or whatever? Well, see, those old photographs... They had to actually leave the film exposed for a very long period of time, and movement through them would just be not picked up. So it's just it, the people were there. It just the earliest the earliest photography was incapable of capturing movement, and it basically captured the still image only because it took that long for it to basically burn into primitive film. And there's so many conspiracy theorists that are that are so easily explained. See, Finbear right here, and I'm not picking on Finbear. I don't believe Building 7 was a carpet fire. Yeah, nobody does. That's not that's not even close to the official explanation, uh, Building 7. Sorry. Okay, so you want to do you want to do Building 7? See, before 9-11 happened, I, I actually had been inside Building 7, and I literally thought, holy shit, this thing's going to collapse someday because it was an amazing feat of architecture. I believe it was either 7 or 11 stories straight up wide open on the bottom. I think the, the first floor that actually, like when you looked up and saw a ceiling from like the lobby area, do you know what they kept there? Diesel generators. Now I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that maybe there wasn't explosives planted in Building 7, but I'm saying the idea that there's no way it could have collapsed and went straight down like that is ignoring all the facts. Like you can maybe you can make a case and explain those facts away, but when you just say because of how it fell it had to be and you haven't you haven't gone through those facts and you haven't actually explained them, then you're just pulling shit out of your ass that you heard somebody else say. And when you say, well, structural engineer this and that, I have found that most of these people who people put in these mockumentaries, right? And they say, well, this guy's a structural engineer or something. If you do some research on him, that's, they're being fast and loose with the claim of this man's expertise. Now, I have lots of problems with 9-11. The angle of flight into the Pentagon from a jumbo airplane, I, I can tell you flat out that they put trained pilots, like well-trained pilots and assemblers that could not make the flight uh, pattern work the way that it did. I... I think there's some serious bullshit going on with 9-11. But I also think that what happens with the conspiracy theorists is everything becomes not only this is plausible to have this. We absolutely know that this thing happened this way that you can't possibly know. But the real point of this video is, and this is one of the things that makes conspiracy theorists fucking insufferable, folks. Just absolutely insufferable. The lack of of connection to the thing that proves that they're right about everything. So, for instance, there was all the Pizzagate bullshit and the pedophiles in D.C. and all, and I'm not even saying that's not a thing. I'm not even going to go there today. But what I saw happen was when all the Epstein shit came out, 
It became proof of Pizzagate. These two things do not go together. These two things are unconnected with each other. This multi-billionaire pervert piece of shit flying politicians down a pedophile uh, aisle, island, right, does not prove that, that, that some guy with a pizza joint is running pedophile sales, calling it with code names for pizza in his basement in D.C. Even if both are true, one does not prove the other. And this is what happens with the majority of the conspiracy theories. We were right about everything. So since, since the government was completely incompetent and I believe malicious in the way they handled COVID, you were right about your extreme theory about JFK. And I've seen those leaps being made. So I think the question where they write about literally everything is which conspiracy theorists are you talking about? And in what context and in what way? Because I believe the majority of people... See, here's another person. Building 7 obviously fell in a controlled manner. How do you know that? Did you ever go to Building 7? Uh, Bernard, I went to Building 7 before there was any problems. I, went, I was in Building 7 probably two months before 9-11 because I was, I was in sales. I was a Northeast regional sales manager for the company I worked for, and New York was like one of my major markets. Again, you had, it was either seven or 11 stories, I don't remember what, wide open. And if you had a structural failure there, there's only one way that building would have fallen. And if you, go to, if you go to ground zero and you stand there and you look at where the towers were, and you look at where building seven is, the, the, the plausibility anyway, that shit fell on that building and caused that, that problem, are, it's absolutely plausible. Did it happen? I'm not saying it did. But I'm saying this thing where you just say, well, because of the way it fell, it had to be a controlled demolition. To be blunt, bullshit. You don't know what you're talking about when you say that. You have no idea about the architecture of the building, and yet you're making a claim. False equivalency from Liberty Meat Solutions. Again, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying the way we make these claims. How do we know it? We watch the damn thing fall on TV. No plane hit it. Did I say a plane hit it? No. Does a plane have to hit it for the thing that I say happened to have happened? You have massive fires. You have all the backup generators and their diesel fuel sitting on the floor. That is like it, This was done stupidly. Even if it was done maliciously, okay, even if it was done maliciously, the building was set up perfect for it to have imploded. So what is the conspiracy theorist going to say? Well, they built it that way on purpose? Look, guys. Here, yeah, Alex Jones is right. This is what I'm telling you. I knew you guys had come out. You'd come out in droves. This is what Alex Jones did, for those of you that believe in the info warrior Alex Jones. Go look up the absolute preposterous bullshit that Alex Jones did on the, on the very eve of Y2K. Go listen to Alex Jones talking about like like Australia melting down because they hit Y2K first. Go listen to that bullshit. There are people that feed off your ability to be influenced to believe any fucking thing as long as it's counter to the standard belief system. And the truth probably does, in most instances, lie somewhere in the middle. I don't know what video that this guy's talking about, but uh, Houghton is saying, did you see the video? If you mean the video of Building 7 collapsing, who the fuck didn't? Again, a building collapsing onto itself with the architecture Building 7 had does not prove 
that you're right that it was not. Larry Silverstein saying pull it is some kind of code doesn't prove anything. Again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that any of these things are untrue. I'm saying the way something falls doesn't prove your thing. The free fall speed of the building that ignores 45 stories blocked by the buildings in front of it doesn't prove anything. It shows a lack of understanding and an ignorance to what you're actually seeing. And greed and incompetence are more likely than diabolic conspiracy. <sighs> Again, see, so everybody wants to argue their particular pet conspiracy theory. Any of you doing it, tell me one you don't believe. Other than flat earth, because if you believe that, you're an idiot, and if you don't believe it, it doesn't buy any credit with me. Tell me a conspiracy theory you don't believe. If, you're, if you say you're a conspiracy theorist, and, but you believe the absolute extreme version of the conspiracy theory about 9-11. Or here's the real one that got me to do this today. Do you know how many people I saw say this during the whole COVID thing and the clot shot coming out? Now, I said from the very beginning that this vaccine would injure people, kill people. And that the risk from it would probably exceed the risk from the illness, and it would probably not be very effective. I don't consider any of that conspiracy theory. I think that the data we have now, out of VAERS from Pfizer themselves, etc., pr probably pull this, right? Right? Okay? I, 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 I said that before it happened. I said that it would probably have an effect on reproduction rates before it even existed and was in trials just from understanding how mRNA works, And I was hypothesizing, and I said, I have no proof of this, and I could be wrong, but I think this will happen. But do you know what I saw people saying? Every single person that gets this shot is going to die. Everybody. And they're still saying it. Some of these idiots are walking around with four, they might as well leave the syringes hanging out of their arm as a badge of honor. They're not dead. Some people had literally no reaction to it. Some people had extreme reactions. Some people died. It's this extreme reaction. It's this ex or extreme position that people take as conspiracy theorists. And then the absolute willingness to take a place where they weren't even right. They were like partially right. I went to 100%. 50% is now proven. There go my 51 to 100% is proven. And I just say you have to have rational, legitimate thought. You should question every narrative. That's what Nicole's saying. It's reasonable to question narratives. And then right here, Buck says, nobody says everybody's going to die, just most of you. No, wrong, sorry, everybody. I saw it made over and over and over. And most is stupid too. Because have the majority of people who have received the clot shot died? No. Have the majority of people who received the clot shot had severe reactions to it? No. But if it's 10% that have had severe reactions and or died, we have a real problem. We have a real problem. You're an idiot, unsubscribe, dislike, adios. Okay, see, you can't understand, you, you can't stand hearing what you don't want to hear. Right? This is the guy, this is Buck, this is the guy that just said, nobody said everybody. And I told him, yes, they did. And most is wrong. And so he runs away. That's okay. I'll be fine without you and so will the rest of us. So again, That's just my thoughts today. I wanted to talk to you about it. If I pissed you off, I'm sorry. If I crapped on your p particular uh, pet theory, I probably didn't. And this is the interesting about the interesting thing about the conspiracy theorist 
who anchors to it with 100% unshakable faith, because you don't have enough evidence to be sure you're right. When you even say, I'm not saying you're wrong, but here is a plausible other way, they get triggered as fuck, they get really upset, and then they'll say something stupid like, you're a you're a, uh, a, a shill for the CIA, you're a government planner, government op, when, when you are out speaking against it every day. What I'm saying is, conspiracy theorists are often blinded by their own bullshit. Not only should you question every narrative, you should question every alternative theory given for it. You can't claim, and this is the, the last thing I'll say on this and i got to go, you can't claim I've done hundreds of hours or thousands of hours of research if all you've done is watch video after video and, and article after article that confirms the bias that you have in your brain about either side of the issue. You haven't done research. You've intentionally, mentally programmed yourself. You've intentionally, mentally programmed yourself. And, yeah. I can't even, I can't even begin to answer some of the comments that I'm getting. But, if you like this, check out the full episode. The rest of it had nothing to do with conspiracy theories. I will say farewell, friends, and I will be back with you next week with some stuff that is totally non-conspiracy theory driven. The guy that popped off with one comment and then ran away and said, I'm unsubscribing. He probably was never a subscriber anyway. That made the whole rant worth doing. Anyway, guys, uh, I hope you did enjoy that a little bit different. I think we need to go down that rabbit hole once in a while. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny to me that everybody in the mainstream considers me a conspiracy theorist, but everybody that's like a true full-on tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist considers me to be a shill for the mainstream. Maybe that means... Maybe that means I'm a critical thinker. If you're kind of the same, maybe that means you're a critical thinker too. Never fail to challenge any idea, including the ones that you yourself believe in. And when somebody says, I'm not saying you're wrong, but start believing that maybe they're telling you the truth and then maybe you can learn something from each other. With that, hey, you like this show and I didn't piss you off too much by crapping on your pet conspiracy theory. And uh, you want to help support the show and the work that I do, two ways to do that. One, become a member of the MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Look at all the stuff you get discounts on. I'm working on getting you guys a discount on body armor right now because I'm a conspiracy theorist, right? No, for real. I, I think I have that about nailed down. And uh, really uh, looking forward to bringing that vendor on. I've, this is something I've tried to do for a long time, and it's it, I don't know. It's a weird space. To, to work with people on, but uh, trying to bring you that. Lots of other stuff. Got CBD products that are on discount. Uh, butcher box, uh, so meat shipped to your door on discount. I got discounts on plants and seeds. I got discounts on everything for you guys. So you get your money back and you support the show. Again, just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members to learn more. And I do take cryptocurrency. And uh, if you pay with Bitcoin, I give you a very, very, very generous discount option anyway. Uh, you have to try to buy it. It's a manual process to find out exactly what that discount program is. Next up, you can also shop at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day today is the Fetter, Fet, Fletcher's Federal Pepper mill um i have used one of these things the one that i've owned the longest for 15 years 15 years i've been doing the show 14 years it still works like the day i got it some of the finishes rubbed off and whatever and i actually have two more i have one that's made specifically for salt 
And I have another one for pepper that's smaller and a different color that I keep white peppercorns in. So I have black peppercorns in a dark one and white peppercorns in the lighter shaded one. That way it's easy to grab. These things are expensive for a pepper mill. They're about 50 bucks and some change either way, depending on the options. Why the hell would you spend that much on a pepper mill and what does it have to do with, with cooking? So I believe that lifestyle design is the best form of preparedness and that lifestyle design includes making your own food and making really great food so you spend less money and you eat less garbage. So there's that. So I think that fresh pepper is one of the most important tools a, a chef can have, whether it's a home chef or whether it's somebody out in a restaurant cooking uh, at a high-level restaurant. Pre-ground pepper is shit. I'll just say it. It's garbage, and you should not use it. It doesn't taste the same. It doesn't smell the same. It doesn't work the same, especially when you're putting it on food, not cooking with food. Really, at that point, it's out the window. So you need it. So then you can go buy your $12, $15, $20 pepper mill, and within a year or two, you will throw it away and cuss at it. I found this when I was in a, like a gourmet shop, and I had a little tag on it, and it said, the last pepper mill you'll ever buy. And I had just thrown away one like a couple days ago, and I was pissed, and I was reading it, and I was mumbling, and I looked at the price. It was like 49 bucks. This is 15 years ago. This thing has not gone up much in price over 15 years, even with Bidenflation, right? And, uh, but I went and I bought it, and like I said, I've been using it for 15 years now. So I believe buy once, cry once. And you're talking about something, you know, in my home, this gets used every day. So I, I, I've never done the calculation, but I think if you took 15 years, and probably every time I pick it up, I think I use about three cranks. I probably use it three or four times a day, maybe once in a while while I'm cooking as well. It's probably the millions of cranks that this thing is made, and it still functions. One thing to be aware of, if you check this guy out, You can change colors and options and sizes, 4-inch, 6-inch, 8-inch, large ones, small ones. Some of the options are for the salt grinder. And a salt grinder and a pepper grinder are not the same. I would say you could safely grind salt in a pepper grinder for a while until it corrodes the metal parts, which it probably will. And that's why the salt grinder is made with plastic, because some things, and it's a certain kind of plastic, a nylon plastic, so certain things are better in plastic. And that's why the pepper one is steel. So make sure you buy the right one for your needs. And I even give you, if you check out my write-up today, the white peppercorns that I use. These are awesome. I have not put them in a T-Spaz catalog yet. I will. But pepper grinder or not, shop at tspaz.com. Help us out no matter what we do with that. I will be back next week. Next week we will have... One episode of Bitcoin Breakout, so those of you who are mad at me for talking about Bitcoin too much can stop. That's the whole point of doing this. It took some adjustment. We are on track and schedule now. Thank you guys for tuning in today. It's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just... Run you around. They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.